0: the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: I'm Sandra Davidson.
0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
2: And I'm Anita Rao. So we're really excited about our episode tonight. Um, And it stems from uh, one of the things that Sandra and I really love to read, which is Lenny Letter. So Lenny Letter is a weekly newsletter from Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor about all things feminist. And two weeks ago, we came across a Lenny essay written by Native American actor Julia Jones. She is best known for her work in The Twilight Saga and wrote a piece about what it's like to be a Native actor in Hollywood, where she feels marginalized and at times even ostracized. Jones called for more three-dimensional portrayals of Native people in film and for more thoughtful dialogue about issues of representation. So all of this got us thinking about our friend Meredith McCoy. Meredith is a Ph.D. student in the American Studies program at UNC, where she
1: studies the intersection of Native issues and public education. We invited Meredith on the show to talk about her personal story and her work, and she gave us a lot to think about. So Meredith grew up in Chapel Hill in a multicultural household. Her mother hails from a Southern family with roots that stretch beyond the American Revolution, and her father is a citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. The Turtle Mountain Band has specific blood quantum rules, and Meredith's father, aunts, and uncles are enrolled citizens, but Meredith and her sister are not. Nevertheless, Meredith grew up understanding that indigeneity was an important part of her identity. You know, when I was growing up in my house, there were
3: things that just let me know that our house was a little bit different Hmm. than my friends' houses were. Yeah, so there were two portraits in the house. One was a portrait of my mother's mother. She is a very refined southern lady. (laughs) In her picture, she has on a red blazer with a little pine bluff pin, a little gold <laughs> pin on her lapel. <laughs> oh and she is just the picture of poise. I mean, she's sort of gazing into the distance and just looks very elegant. Um, in the picture of my father's mother, which was painted, um, I think, in her early 20s, she is in buckskin and bone jewelry and her hair is really long. And she's got this sort of like bemused, wistful look. And it's I don't think she's ever worn buckskin in her life. Like I don't, I don't know what this is coming from. Except that this is how we portray Native women in our society. She was a Native woman, so having a portrait made of her meant that the portrait painter felt the need to paint her in a certain way. Hmm. Uh, and even just the sort of level of uh, modesty in these two portraits. My mother's mother is very covered. My dad's mother comes across in this painting as very curvy. Um, and very voluptuous. You can see that, you know, despite the buckskin coat that she's, sure. that she's got on. That was sort of my first clue that, you know, something is different one side of the family to the other. <laughs> I've got to navigate whatever this mm-hmm. is. I So I know
2: you as, like, college and post-college, incredibly smart, very articulate, Meredith. But I'm trying to think about, like, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old Meredith. Like, how, how did she perceive her Native identity um, before you had the vocabulary to express it in this way, when you were out in the world, were you aware of stereotypes and myths and how you were being seen? Did you identify pretty publicly as having that kind of heritage?
3: Yeah. So there um, – I have so many responses to that question. I don't even know where to start. Uh, so when I was eight years old, I was in third grade. I went to Glenwood Elementary School. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Glenwood does this anymore, but they used to do – when multiculturalism was sort of the buzzword in education, there was an annual multicultural fair. And it was uh, every class, to my recollection, would have a country that they had as their focus for the year. And you'd learn songs and um, do arts and crafts projects and, you know, hold up the flag. And it was it was very much trying to figure out the perspective of another country. And in third grade, uh, and I don't know if this was my whole class or if I just decided this was something I was going to do, we did a table at the multicultural fair that was the Native table. Hmm. Now, 27-year-old me looking back is like, wow, that's hugely problematic. You thought that you could represent a nativeness that is somehow essentializing all 560-plus Native communities into one thing. And it gets even worse if you look at the table, (laughs) because the table, it's (laughs) it's so bad. So, you know, very well-intentioned teachers who did a tremendous job educating us in all ways, perhaps except this one, Um, (laughs) there is a bust of a Native person. Like, this is an arts and crafts project done by my class. Turkey feathers, which is, that's fine. Just like a lot of Native communities do value feathers. That's That's not made up. But this image is just so right out of a Western that it's painful. It's like um, the table has all kinds of summer camp style beadwork. It's like those big neon beads (laughs) on a string. Um, And so, you know, I I was actually talking about this with my dad recently. And he said uh, that he thought I was maybe being a little too negative about it. That what I should instead take away from it is look at this incredible small child who felt the need to find a space for an assertion of an indigenous nationhood Mm. within this sort of country fair. Um, And so I I was aware from a pretty early age that there is a a political identity to this that is in many ways as if not more important than the cultural aspect of it. Um, One of the books that I read in middle school – Not that I could totally understand what was happening in middle school, but was burying my heart at Wounded Knee. I was reading Vindaloria. I was reading Dee Brown. And this is, you know, sort of Indian political thought, Mm -hmm. activist thought that was really influencing how I saw myself and my place in Indian communities. And I was trying to navigate what does it mean to be white and native? What does it mean to be colonizer and colonized in the same body? And how do I deal with that as a person? Am I Native? Do I get to claim a space in a Native community because my father raised me as a Native and white person? Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say that, you know, for us, indigeneity has way more to do with a connection to place that is our ancestral place and also a connection to kinship networks that are now Like that are a thing for us as how we identify ourselves, these kinship networks with my cousins who are out in North Dakota. I think there are a lot of people who self-identify as Native who really love their Ancestry.com accounts, (laughs) and they like to be Native when it's cool and exciting and fashionable, but they don't want to be Native when they have to deal with the trauma and Mm. um, the poverty and the illness. Uh, And so, you know, there was... There was an element of my dad's teaching that was, as a Native person, you have an increased risk for heart disease, and you have an increased risk for diabetes, and you have an increased risk for depression. And you need to know these things and be prepared for them because when they come to you, as they almost inevitably will, because they've hit almost everyone else on the Native side of your family, Mm -hmm. you need to be ready to handle it. You know, it was this sort of multi-layered way of understanding what it meant to be indigenous while not growing up in the place that your tribe is from. And again, I think it's an increasingly common experience for a lot of Native people who don't grow up in their tribal community. We have to remember 90% of Native people don't live on reservations. And there was also this element of you're a Native woman.
1: And what does that mean? It sounds like you're having some very sophisticated conversations <laughs> with your father, and I would like to meet him. My dad's a pretty great guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I really would like to hear you Talk a little bit about what he was saying to you. What what it means to be a native woman. What you should expect.
3: So, native women, right, get cast into a couple of different stereotypes in society. Uh, one is sort of a hypersexualized, alluring figure, mm-hmm. uh, and the other is, and I guess there are, there are a few, but another would be um, sort of a stoic. Very, you know, stoicism for some reason gets attached to Native people frequently. It's part of that whole noble, savage, mystical other thing. You know, when you watch, for example, the first exposure that lots of American kids have to Native people, Pocahontas. Pocahontas. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And the the woman who voices Pocahontas, Irene Bedard, is a very well-respected Native actress who's Mm -hmm. done some tremendous roles um, and has gotten a lot of awards in Canada. She's a wonderful actress. But in Pocahontas, right, it has become very much distanced from the actual story of the woman who was really Pocahontas, who, according to some interpretations, right, was very politically savvy and was a negotiator between her community and the colonists who were arriving. And, of course, you get none of that in the Disney film, right? She's right. just a sort of lovesick, uh, willing to sacrifice herself because this white man has captured her heart somehow, right? It's, mm-hmm. um, And, you know, if we think about every Halloween, the costumes that are made, quote-unquote, in her honor, are incredibly sexual. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this one way in which we see Native women as sort of less than human and incredibly sexualized at the same time. And I think that, that very much influenced how my sister and I saw our own family history, knowing that there were lots of instances of sort of single mothers, teenage mothers in our family that idea that native women are somehow just sexually promiscuous like was part of us figuring out like is this true is it not true and when you when you're raised in a community like we were where there were so few native people we were among the only ones that we knew at the time you know we didn't have a lot of other representations to look to to counteract that
2: talking about growing up native in Chapel Hill and the impact media representations of native women had on her identity. So after college, Meredith moved to Nashville to work with Teach for America as a Spanish social studies reading and writing teacher. She was placed in an underserved school with many minority students and quickly noticed that talking openly about her own native identity made her students feel more comfortable addressing race, ethnicity, and oppression in class discussions. She loved working one-on-one with students, but after four years in the classroom, she decided that she ultimately wanted to work in education at a broader policy level.
1: So, Meredith returned to North Carolina for graduate school to study the relationship between tribal education departments and the U.S. Department of Higher Education. But she also got involved with a variety of Native groups on campus. She's currently the co-president of UNC's First Nations Graduate Circle that hosts a yearly symposium to discuss scholarly issues and advocacy work. This year's symposium focuses on how issues of Native representation inform historic trauma, a phenomenon that shapes Native communities across the country and Meredith's own family. Trauma comes from a number of uh, locations and and
3: events in Native communities, and I can really only speak for my own family and and my own community. Um, My great-grandparents both attended boarding school, Native boarding schools, This was a period of U.S. history from roughly the end of the Civil War through the beginning of the 20th century when thousands of Native children were forcibly removed from their families and sent to boarding schools uh, where they were systematically taught to be white. The basic narrative that gets repeated now is from this guy, Richard Henry Pratt, who was a Civil War veteran and who at the time was considered a progressive because he thought Instead of exterminating Indians, let's assimilate them. Surely they can be, quote-unquote, reformed. And so he decided that he was going to institute these, these boarding schools. Um, and the model was bring Indian children in, and sometimes they came voluntarily. Sometimes uh, his narrative, which was your children need to learn English, and they need to be taught how to work in a white world, sometimes that was really persuasive for Native parents, and so they would send their children off to school. Unfortunately, these schools were spaces of a lot of physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse. Many Indian children went through a period of silence because they were not able to speak English yet. They, but they were being told constantly, you have to speak English or they would be um, physically punished mm-hmm. uh, for speaking their tribal languages. And so what we see then is there is a trauma in the first generation of the children who attended these schools. They had been removed from their communities at a really formative time when you develop your social identity and also when you're looking to your parents as models for what does it mean to be an adult in my community. Hmm. And then when they got out of school, many of them went home and they didn't have those models of what it meant to be an adult, a successful adult, a contributing adult in this space. And so what that meant was the beginning of a disintegration of community bonds and, and community ways of being. Uh, Now, that is not to say at all that this was the end of Native communities. Native communities are tremendously resilient, uh, and many students found ways to use the tools they had picked up in school to then work for the benefit of their communities. They became attorneys negotiating, for example, treaty rights for their communities, uh, or they went to work in medicine, or they they became writers and advocates. Uh, So that's not to say that boarding schools were 100% awful all of the time but they did create this sort of seed trauma. What happens in a lot of cases, my family included, is those children who are students grow up to be parents, and they don't know how to parent Hmm. because they were not themselves parented. And so then when it's time for them to be parents, they're not able to give that sense of sort of love and care. And again, this is not all the time, but in some cases. And so then their children also grow up not knowing really what it means to parent in that traditional way. Um, so what we end up seeing is a lot of substance abuse, a lot of cycles of sexual violence where the children themselves grow up to become perpetrators because that is what they were brought up into. And that's just one example of trauma. That would be the the one from my own family. Uh, now what we're looking at is, okay, we know that we have these these traumas in our communities that get passed down to us from one generation to the next. So now how do we use what we know now as Native peoples and combine that with the things that we've always known that have not gotten wiped out of our communities? And how do we identify those things as assets to then try and chip away at the harm that's been done and turn it around?
2: Can you locate us even more specifically in your family's particular story where, so your, your grandparents' generation were the ones that were Great in, grandparents. Your great-grandparents. My great grandparents. Okay, tell us what you know about them and their sure. experience of? that in particular
3: um so i really fortunately uh recently acquired copies of their school registration documents from the national archives in kansas city and when i posted them on facebook i had cousins from all across north dakota freaking out because they didn't even know these existed they didn't know where to go to find them they you know would not have known oh i have to request it Oh, i have to pay for it they can scan me copies so this this was a big deal for my family to get these records um So my my great-grandparents were Gideon Nicholas and Josephine Christine Villeneuve Nicholas. Um, They were both born in North Dakota in sort of greater Turtle Mountain area. So Gideon was a fiddler and a farmer and – Apparently had these, you know, great moments of, of joy where he would set my grandmother up on the table and she would dance after dinner. You know, he'd play and, and she would mm-hmm. dance. And these are all stories that I sort of get little pieces of um, from from my grandmother from time to time because she was one of the youngest children out of a very large family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as one of the youngest, she had a little bit less time with her parents than some of the older siblings did. So I've also gotten some information from my cousins. Mm-hmm. Um you know, unfortunately, a lot of what my grandmother remembers is not happy. Mm-hmm. So that sort of joyful memory of dancing on the table is is uh, one of the few moments that she's given me a, a hint that there was some joy in her childhood. Mm-hmm. A lot, you know, I asked her one time about my great grandfather. and um, And what she said was that he was a really hard worker and that he worked with his hands by day and with his elbow by night referring to alcoholism right right? he was a very heavy drinker Um, she says she remembers that they would talk to each other in Michif which is the the Creole language um, between Chippewa Cree and and French that they would only speak to each other in that language which of course they'd been taught in the boarding school not to speak uh, when they were fighting with each other Hmm. and so she remembers she remembers hearing profanity in Michif uh, but no sort of caring or warm conversations mm-hmm. and everything else was in English. Mm. So um,
1: negative associations with absolutely.
3: that. Absolutely. And, so you know, I w- I was speaking with um, with a friend recently who told me that what she remembers from, from growing up native, she's not Turtle Mountain, but what she remembers from growing up native was she was told by her grandmother, marry white and get out as quick as you can.
0: Hmm.
3: And that's not uh, dissimilar from what my grandmother believed about herself. Mm-hmm. She m- married white. And got out she married into the army and then moved all over uh, and when my dad and I planned a trip back up to to Belcourt last summer it was the first time we'd gone um, I asked her if she wanted to come and she said absolutely not that there was no way she would ever go back so because for her it is an unhappy place
1: That was Meredith McCoy talking about historic trauma in Native communities and how it shaped her own family. Meredith's grandmother left the Turtle Mountain Reservation around the Second World War and has never returned. She married a man in the U.S. military, which took her and Meredith's father all over the world. While her grandmother remains troubled by her childhood, Meredith's father has devoted much of his life to advocating for Native communities. He was the first member of a federally recognized tribe to graduate from UNC Chapel Hill's Law School and is the former deputy director of the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs. Last summer, he joined Meredith on a research trip to the Turtle Mountain Reservation in North Dakota. It was the very first time he and Meredith had visited their tribe's territory. What was it like to enter that reservation with your father, who has been such a significant part of helping you navigate, inform, and understand your identity? I think
3: it was the sort of like, take each other by the arm and walk into it wide-eyed and questioning together. Uh, Neither of us had any idea what we were walking into. We didn't know how many of our cousins were still up there. I had some people I'd reached out to in advance, but... We didn't know if we were going to be welcomed, if we were going to be sort of told that's nice, but your family, y'all left. You're really not here anymore. And what we found was just an incredible warmth and desire to sort of bring us back into the fold. So, you know, for dad and me, we, we spent a lot of that time that we were up there finding family members and sort of, it was sort of snowballing. We'd find a family member and she would say, Oh, while you're here, you have to meet this other family member. And so then we'd go meet that family member. Oh, and while you're here, you have to go out to the nursing home and meet this uncle. So we'd go out there and and meet that person. And we ended up just finding a a sense of community that I think we were both really hungry for um, but didn't know if if we would find. Uh, And it just gave so much context, I think, to things that we both understood sort of factually about the family but but that we had never been able to really put any sort of of humanity to. Yeah. And so we you know we ended up m- meeting a lot of these wonderful people and also visiting some really important places. We went to the church and went to mass where my great grandparents attended. Mm. When we were walking out of services my dad told the priest he said this is the first time anyone from my family has stepped foot in this church since 1947. Wow. It it was just it was uh, a stunning experience in a lot of ways. And one of the best things that we did, I think, was uh, so in the in the late 1880s, there was a national policy called allotment that was the federal government parceling reservation land into these squares that they then assigned to native people. And the idea was whatever land was not assigned was surplus and they could Mm. sell it off. Of course, it wasn't surplus land. It was being used by community members, but that was what the government chose to do with it. And so my dad and I, uh, we went over to the tribal government office and we saw a former tribal chairman that my dad knew from his time out in New Mexico and his time working with the National Congress of American Indians. And And Jiggers pulled out the land maps and said, you know, let's figure out where your family got their allotment. And we, Dad and I drove out, and he stood on the land that was his great-grandfather's land. Wow. And for him, it was just this sort of moment. You know, I felt a little bit weird about it. I was like, Dad, you know, somebody probably lives here. We shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. And he just needed to feel the dirt. Mm-hmm. You know, he needed to feel like this is the place that I come from. And so it was It was all of that. It was the places. It was the people. It was a, a confirmation of, of the connectedness that we had always felt, um, and sort of an, an affirmation that this is this is who we come from, this is where we belong, and sort of the historical reasons that we are separated from those people we had no control over. Mm-hmm. And if we choose in our current selves to reform those connections that processes of colonialism forced ruptures in, that's something that we can do.
2: It's Meredith McCoy talking about the trip that she and her father made to the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indian Reservation in North Dakota. So as we mentioned earlier, Meredith is not a citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band because of blood quantum requirements. But that doesn't stop her from maintaining a strong connection to her Native identity. Meredith also makes a point to engage people in dialogue on Facebook and Twitter and considers all of these issues as she thinks about how she will raise her own family with her husband, who has dual citizenship in Peru and the United States. As you move forward and look at your future and potential children and starting a family, how do you see yourself being able to pass this on um, when you know your children will have the same experience as you did or even more removed because they won't have their father having been a citizen?
3: There's a, a really interesting piece of the federal education legislation that defines who an Indian person is, and it says that an Indian person is a member of a tribe or the child or grandchild of a member of a tribe. Hmm. I can remember being told as as a younger person that the indigeneity stops with me, that I'm the last generation that should count. Hmm which sort of flies in the face of everything that I've already told you about how I understand indigeneity and how it's a connection to to place and to people and to a language background. And I had a friend tell me recently, she said, why can't you just be white? And it was, sort of took me back. It was like, what kind of a question is that even?
1: Seriously, (laughs) what kind of a question is that?
3: You know, I've been sort of, processing that in the months since since I was asked that question and we inherit certain things as native people we inherit the legacies of poverty and of all of the issues that have accompanied boarding school traumas we also inherit really wonderful communities and and communities of people of which we get to be a part and i just keep thinking that that's why this doesn't stop with me my children will in theory, if they ever come to be, will be dual citizens of the United States and of Peru. Um, My husband's Peruvian. Just like my dad is a dual citizen of the United States and of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. And that they have a right to understand that their grandfather was a dual citizen of two nations, Mm. just like their father will be a citizen of two nations. And so I... I understand that it becomes less of a connection, particularly if I don't raise them in North Dakota. But I also don't think that means it disappears. Mm. And I think part of what it will be my job is to engage with them in that sort of critical analysis of why is this the system that we're in, why is society giving you the set of messages that tell you that you don't belong, to what extent do you as an individual feel like that defines who you are. They can have access to their cousins and we can go up to Turtle Mountain. That doesn't mean that they're going to choose to make that a part of their lives, but I do think it's my responsibility to make sure that they're informed and that they have the right to, to latch onto that if they want to. And again, it, it all comes back to family, to maintaining those connections to family and to Turtle Mountain. and teaching them to speak, the little bits of Anishinaabemowin that I can pass on.
1: That was Meredith McCoy, a Ph.D. student in the American Studies Department at UNC. You can follow her research at MeredithMcCoy.com and check her out on Twitter at Meredith L. McCoy. That's a wrap for us tonight, but first we have to remind you guys of all the very important details and places and locations that you can find She and Her. So you can find us on Facebook,
2: Twitter, Instagram at She and Her Radio. Like us, follow us, all of that jazz. And please write us a review on iTunes right now. Stop what you're doing, go to iTunes and write us a review We'll repost information about how to do it in case you're an iTunes novice. But no matter what, we thank you in advance. She and Her is recorded at the studios of WHUP in downtown Hillsboro. Our theme music was composed by Cameron Laws and Sam Gerwick. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next week.